Hear the word of God from 2 Corinthians, beginning with chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Waypoint. Nice response. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I like it. Well, my name is Ben. I'm a pastoral intern here. I get the pleasure of preaching the word this morning to you guys. So I want to begin with a scenario. I'd like to always set the stage, you know, before we dive in. So imagine this scenario with me. It's a real scenario that's about to happen. Duke is playing their first home basketball game. 
which is probably next week or sometime soon. What would happen if you went to that game and you were wearing a Carolina blue shirt? And let's say in this scenario, you know, they're, they're not playing Carolina, they're playing Minnesota, okay, or, or some random team. There's no reason for you to have a Carolina blue shirt, and yet you choose to wear that and you go to the game. Probably wouldn't go too great, right? People would probably get frustrated, they'd have choice words, whatever. Now, what would happen if you doubled down and said, oh, no, it's cool, it's cool. I'm actually a Duke fan. It's all good. Well, actually, that would make it worse, right? Because you're like, well, if you're a Duke fan, then what are you doing in this place, Cameron Indoor? This is Duke basketball. This is the history of Duke basketball. This is where Duke is. You're wearing the rival, but you, you think it's cool because you're a Duke fan? Right? It, ju- it just doesn't make sense, right? Because Duke and Carolina... In case you don't know, right? We're in the triangle, but in case you don't know, the rivals, okay? They don't like each other. It doesn't make sense for you to go to Cameron Indoor Stadium wearing a Carolina blue shirt. That those just associations don't mix. And it definitely doesn't mix if you claim to love Duke, namely because it should be reflected by what shade of blue you choose to wear. Dark blue, right? I share that because I think it's somewhat a helpful illustration for what's going on at the end of chapter 6 in 2 Corinthians. Paul is talking about these just associations that don't make sense, right? He asks in all these rhetorical questions. Do light and darkness go together? No. Do idols go into God's temple? No. What fellowship does Christ have with a word for Satan? These associations just don't make sense. And namely, Paul is saying, well, if, if you claim to love God, kind of what he's saying at the end of 6 is there ought to be a holiness or a distinction to your life and such that your way you live your life is different from everybody else around you. Again, like in our example, if you claim to love Duke basketball, that should be evident in what choice of blue you decide to wear in that place. It just doesn't make sense. So really, this morning we're going to look at two things. The first is asking this question, what does it mean that we are the temple of the living God? So that comes up in verse 16 of chapter 6. Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. And that's kind of the thrust of all these kind of associations he talks about and the calls to holiness he's calling the church of Corinth to. Then we'll look at chapter 7 and kind of really hone in verses 8 through 10 on this idea of godly grief versus worldly grief. And how that kind of played out in the life of the Corinthians, how it might play out in our life today. So first, temple of the living God. What does that mean? Right? It would, it would make sense before we try and understand what does it mean that we are that. We need to first understand what the that is. Right? What, so what is the temple? Right? I'm going to put on my Pastor Danny hat for a little bit. Be, be the history teacher. Okay? Um, so temple, very briefly. Well, it was the most important thing in Jerusalem. Not an understatement to say that. But primarily, this is the place where God dwelled, where his presence was understood to be. This is where God lives and rules as the king of this world was in the temple. It's where God was. It's where his presence was. And also, I have a picture for you guys. It was also this beautiful massive, made, you know, really well with tons of details, just structure, made in such a way that you were supposed to look at it and go, who lives there? 
I mean, it's, it's so majestic. It's so glorious. It's so grand. Look, look at that just feat of architecture and engineering. Who lives there? He must be incredible. He must be majestic. He must be glorious. In a way, it was supposed to communicate a theology of the one who dwelled there. It was the most important place in the ancient Hebrew world, the temple. Again, this is the place where the creator of the universe is understood to be. And so because of that, the temple had a certain holiness or a reverence to it. Meaning you, you didn't just go into the temple, okay? Especially into the holy of holies where God's presence particularly was understood to dwell. Okay, actually only one person once a year could do that. The high priest would go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and would make sacrifices on behalf of the people he was ministering to into God's presence in the Holy of Holies. Now, if you're anything like me, when you do your Bible reading plan, you know, you try and do it. You have, you have a good heart. But sometimes you get to some passages and you're like, I don't really get why this is super important. You know, one of those that I expect you might have come across is Exodus 28. It's the high priest garments, right? I don't know if anybody's like... I memorized the high priest garments, you know, and it just doesn't come up a lot. Um, but verses 34 through 35, there's something interesting that I reckon you might have, you know, skipped over. It says that the high priest has to wear a bell. Have you ever asked your question, why does he have to wear a bell? And that kind of weird. We don't really wear bells. Why does the high priest have to wear a bell? Well, they had a correct understanding of the holiness of God. And that they were about to send in this person. Yes, he's the high priest, but he's still a created being. He's still a sinful person. And he's going into the presence of God. So the assumption was he might die. He's going into the presence of God. So literally the other priest, as he continued to walk, they knew he's still alive. I hear the bell. He's okay. He's still there. And he has a rope tied around his leg because guess what? If they stopped hearing the bell, the high priest didn't make it. We're not sending in the low priest, right? <laughs> so we're pulling him out, right? And I share that to help just illustrate the temple. It was understood. This was a place of awe, of reverence. This is where God is. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul looks at a church that previously was known for rampant sexual immorality and idol worship. He says, we are the temple of the living God. And so naturally you would go, huh? These people that have that past? They're the temple? What does that mean? So, we're going to unpack that. So, again, the temple is the place in the biblical story where God's presence primarily dwells. Not only there, right? It shows up in the burning bush and some other places. But primarily, it's understood to be in the temple. So understand this. If the people of God are the temple, it means that it's through these people that God now reaches the world. One scholar put it like this. In the ancient world... People traveled far and wide to encounter God at the temple. But now, the people of God, the church at Corinth, you and I, any follower of Jesus today, we're the temple. 
and we take God's presence to the world. You see that reversal? You don't need to go to Jerusalem to experience God. They can have coffee with you. They can come to this church. They can hang out in your neighborhood. And so because of that, what Paul is saying at the end of 6 and getting into 7 verses 1 and 2 is we ought to live differently. There ought to be a holiness or a separateness or a distinction to your life because you're the place where God dwells. So, yeah, in chapter 7, verse 1, Paul has that line where he says, Since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And again, this is the basis of those questions where Paul is at the beginning of the chapter just trying to help them see. Those associations just don't make sense if you're the temple. If you're the temple, you're called to holiness. You're called to extinction. It just doesn't make sense. And it starts in verse 14. He asks the question, what space does a non-believer have to be yoked with a believer? Has anyone used the word yoked, not, you know, in an egg context recently? Probably not. Oh, okay. You have. Okay, great. Um, But in, in case you're a little unfamiliar with that word, right, like I was, I have a picture for you guys. So yoked was a farming instrument used to tie two animals together, okay? So yoke, it literally just means that idea of connected, right? If, if you look at the picture, it's not like the, you know, whatever, animal on the right's like, hey, I think we should go this way. And the other one's like, nah, let's go this way. Okay, no, it's like, they're going together, right? They are connected. Think about like a, uh, like your three-legged race or whatever, when you, you know, when you tie together. If, if you think you're gonna go this way, what? You're gonna fall, right? You have to go together, it's that idea. So, so what is Paul saying here then? Don't be yoked with unbelievers, right? Obviously, Jesus spent his entire ministry in his life spending time with people who didn't follow him, right? Spending time with people that historically then the church would have said not to associate with, right? Paul spent his entire earthly ministry trying to reach people who never heard the good news of Jesus. So it would be a horrible misinterpretation to go, Christians should never associate with people who aren't Christians Let's all buy an island and get all the Christians on it. We're good. Nope. Take 30 seconds to actually think about it. There's no way you would come to that conclusion. Okay. So this idea of what does it mean to be yoked, you've got to understand a little bit of the context. Again, Corinth is really known for idol worship, rampant sexual morality. It would not have been uncommon for you to maybe have a business partner that in before you knew the Lord Jesus Christ, Maybe before a big business deal, you were like, hey, let's sacrifice to this idol. Let's sacrifice to this, what a Christian would now understand to be a false god. And then now you get saved, you come to experience the gospel, you love Jesus Christ, you're about to do a big business deal, and your partner goes, let's sacrifice to the idol. And now you're going, whoa, I don't do that anymore. Right? So... That would be an example of what Paul is kind of talking about here. Be careful who you're connected to. Where they're going, you're going, and just be weary of the associations you're giving yourself. Okay? Now, to be clear, because I know what some of you might be thinking, right? I'm living rent-free in some of your heads right now. Some of you are thinking, if you knew who I really was, you would never say that I'm a part of this temple. If you knew what I did last week, or if you, if, you, if you knew the thoughts that went on in my head, you would never loop me in to this, this temple, right? Because we think it's 
about ourselves. We think it's about what we've done. But to be clear, we are the temple of the living God because of the gospel. The only way we can be seen as pure, sinless, holy, a worthy place for the presence of God to dwell is because of Jesus Christ, right? The, the, the temple is not this kind of like, hey, I'm a Christian, but like maybe if like I, you know, do the Bible reading in a year plan, if I do that like every day, and if I like always pray, and I like always like go to community group, maybe next year I'll get to temple status, you know? There'll be like a, a temple ceremony where they'll give me a sticker, and they're like, you're the temple now. No, the text is saying, if you're in Christ, you're a part of the temple. This is true of you now. So this is not a try harder, do better, maybe you'll get there idea. It's this is true of your identity now. So hear me and hear Paul say to this church, this is not something I'm trying to heap on you to, you know, make you feel guilty or make you feel like bad about yourself. Well, I did this wrong, I did this wrong. He's saying, this is who you are. Live like it. And that's what he's saying at the end of 6. He's saying, church at Corinth, you're the temple of the living God. Act like it. Live a life that reflects that behavior. And it's important to know, too, here, this is a we, right? This is not an individual thing. This is a corporate thing. This is a church of Corinth together. We are the temple of the living God. Waypoint Church, together, we get to represent the temple of the living God with other churches all over the globe. This is not just an individual thing. So it's easy, and sometimes people hear this passage, and one like it in 1 Corinthians where he talks about the temple, and applications are made that I think are a little funny, but I can understand maybe why you would get there, right? People say, I work out because my body's the temple, or I'm a part of the temple, Okay, you know, I've seen like some gyms, you know, whatever, like my body's a temple of the Lord and some, doc, some guy doing push-ups. I'm like, okay. Um, or people are like, I don't smoke cigarettes because my body is the temple. And again, it's like, I, I don't think Paul is envisioning first century Corinth and wondering, I wonder if they like bench press much. You know, maybe I should come up with this analogy, you know, to really get them in the gym, you know. But people have taken it there, okay. That, believe me, is not what he is getting at, Okay. Again, church, think about this. The temple is where God's presence dwells. Think about the dignity God gives us to invite us into this. Right? Psalm 139 says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're not just a product of a mere biological process. His spirit dwells in us if we follow him and he has invited us to represent him to the world. So you're not just your job. You're not just a mom. You're not just a dad. You're part of the temple of the living God. You represent him to the world together with us, with other followers of Christ. Do you see this incredible privilege God gives you? You represent something so much bigger than yourself. So the application, hear me church, is not, I'm a part of the temple. Maybe I should go on a diet. Maybe, you know, you should, but I don't think that's what the text is getting. Maybe the application is who around you needs to go to the temple, meaning who around you needs to experience God because they can experience God by experiencing us. They can experience God by experiencing you. 
Blessed be the temple in Durham and Chapel Hill that like they did in the Old Testament, they look at us and they go, who is the God you worship? Who's the God that lives there? He's incredible. He's majestic. He's glorious. I want to know what you guys know because I see the way you love and interact with one another and it makes me go, I want, I want to have what you have. Who's the God who lives there? And we say, come see. Come to a service. We'll show you. You can experience the Lord by experiencing us. The nations used to come to the temple, but now we as the temple, we ought to go to the nations. We ought to go to our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, knowing you represent something so much bigger than yourself. Next, we get into chapter 7, and it unpacks a lot of, honestly, the relational challenges that Paul was kind of going back and forth with, with the Corinthians. Much of that we've touched on in previous sermons, so I won't spend a ton of time on it. But the thrust of the chapter kind of comes in verse 10, when Paul talks about the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. He says, one leads to death, the other leads to repentance. Okay, so we'll ask the question, what does that mean? Okay. In some ways, it can be summarized you know, pretty quickly with the whole, if you have young kids, like I have a three-year-old and a two-year-old, and if I see my three-year-old's about to hit the two-year-old with a toy, but we catch it, right, and we say, hey, don't do that, is the three-year-old sorry, or is she sorry because I caught her, right? If she's sorry I caught her, right, that's, that's worldly grief, right? That's just like, you know, and even our daughter is experiencing this now where she's like, man, I feel bad. All right, that I like let you guys down, right? But godly grief, which, you know, I don't, sometimes she asks this, but not often, you know, would be, I can't believe I would actually hit my brother. I love him, right? Um, we're, we're working on that, right? It's a process. Um, but so here in this context, right, there's this conflict between Paul and the church. He didn't feel like he was, you know, being represented fairly in a way that was worthy of his apostleship. Right? They didn't think he was bold enough, or they looked down on him for raising support, for his travel plans, whatever, these things. And also, he likely was responding to the church that was maybe sliding back into the previous ways of sexual morality and idol worship. So Paul does the uncomfortable but necessary thing of sending this, what he calls, quote, a tearful letter with Titus to address these things, to call it out. To put it in terms you and I might use to confront the sin in their life and tell them, you're the temple of the living God. You can't act like this. You need to change. This can't continue to be like this. And he does this church because he loves those people. Because he loves the church of Corinth. Because he loves God and he wants the church, the bride of Christ, to be understood to be holy and set apart. So he's calling them into Live in your identity. And then he's worried, how are they going to respond? Right? Because he ain't there. He sent Titus with the letter. And so even in chapter 7, it talks about here is fear within in verse 5. Many scholars say, like, he's just kind of sitting there biting his fingernails going, I don't know how this church is going to respond. I don't know if they're going to be mad at me. I don't know if they're going to genuinely respond in light of the gospel and repent. Thankfully, the church does. But let's talk about that word for a second, repentance. What, what, what does that word mean? Well, it means to turn. So it implies change, right? An example I thought of, of, you know, in Durham, there's downtown Durham, plenty of 
one-way streets, and let's say you find yourself going the wrong way on a one-way, right? Repentance would not be, you know, you're going the wrong way. You go, oh, going the wrong way, huh? No, right? It, it applies. Turn around, right? You, you need to now, you need to get us out of this situation, right? It's not enough for you to go, huh, made a mistake, went down the wrong way, silly me. It's like, yeah, good, that's step one. What's step two? Let's get out of here, right? There's cars coming, the light just went green, let's go, right? It's kind of a good picture of repentance, right? You need to actually change, and that's an area you need to turn that car around, right? Often we think about repentance, or at least I do, I don't know if you do, but in terms of when we first come to know the Lord, right, we think about when we first repented and believed. But repentance is not just the way we enter the Christian life, it's an ongoing part of it, right? Martin Luther would say, all of life is repentance. So in a way, we can ask the question, well, how do we know if it was godly grief or worldly grief? Well, the question could be, what did it result in? Right? That, that's what Paul was looking at with this church. What did it result in? And we see later on in 7, he talks about that he's overjoyed with the joy of Titus. And we understand that to me that the church has repented. They've embraced Paul and they're saying, hey, we're good with you again. We've, we've changed. I've heard it said, though, a good analogy. Grief is to sin what pain is to a disease. Meaning this. Meaning it wakes you up. You realize something is wrong. So in a world where you can bleed to death, it's good that it feels, you feel pain when you get cut, right? Because then you go, oh, I have a cut. I need to now address the bigger problem, right, of stopping the bleeding and addressing this issue, right? So it's, it's, it's good that you feel, ouch, that hurt. It wakes us up to change. So let's bring it into 2023. Right, Church, I hope this is a place where we can acknowledge no one in here is perfect. Right? We all have blind spots, shortcomings, and I hope we would live a life in such a way that we're okay with people pointing those things out. Right? Just like Paul had to address things going on in this church's life, he was fearful. He was like, I don't know how they're going to respond. But he loves the church and he loves these people and he has to say something. I hope that you and I would feel that too. That we would feel, yeah, it might be uncomfortable, but if this person needs to repent, I might need to say something. Again, it's not fun to feel a cut, but it's good to know you're bleeding. Think about it like this. My kids love playing in the street. Okay, they have one of those red and yellow, like little tight things, you know, where you like go like that and like, you know, they go all on the road. And they know the one rule is you always got to ask mom or dad before you go on the road, right? So, like, they'll play in the driveway or whatever, and then, like, real cute, they'll get to the road, and they'll go, can I go on the road? You know, and I'm always like, well, did you look both ways? Hold on. Wait, wait for me to get there. Okay, let's go. Now, one Saturday in particular, it was three, four weeks ago, we're potty training our son, Roman. Well, really, he's, he's done it. We potty trained him, I guess. But anyway, we were potty training him at this point. So I'm outside with both the kids. Lacey is taking pictures so I'm kind of solo. Roma's going, I got pee, I got pee. Okay, we need to address that. All right, let me take you inside to the potty. You know, we're trying to teach him. Ruth didn't want to come inside. Ruth is our three-year-old daughter. She, you know, just kind of had one of those moods where she was like, I want, I want to stay outside. I was like, okay, fine, you can stay outside. Can't go on the road. 
right? That's the one rule. Hang out in the front yard, do whatever you want to do. Can't go on the road. Now, to ease any fears that may be there, she listened. She didn't go on the road. Everything's fine. She's great, okay? But let's do a thought experiment. What would happen if I took Roman to the potty, came out, Ruth was playing in the road? I would need to say something, right? As a parent, what, what if I had the temptation, though, like, man, I just want to be the cool dad, you know? Like, Lacey's away, mom's away, you know, they're with dad. Like, I'm just a cool dad. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm not going to say anything, right? I would hope all of you would be like, no, dude, don't be the cool dad. That's not okay what she did, right? You need to address that. She needs to, whatever, go to timeout. Because I know what Ruth might not know, right? What she thinks is harmless and fun is playing in the road. I know it can be dangerous and maybe even lead to death. She doesn't know that. Church, that's a really good picture for our sin. We think it's harmless. It's fun. Satan whispers, no one will ever know. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Every, everybody struggles with this. Just don't mention it. And we need brother or sisters in our life going, that's actually not okay. And my fear, church, is that some of us, maybe even now, metaphorically, are seeing people we love standing really close to the road. But we're going, I want to be the cool dad. Mom will address it. I don't want to say anything. Somebody else will say something, right? And we come up with these thoughts that are from the scriptures but are very cultural of, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I mess up too, so I, I'm, I'm not in a place where I can say anything. If you take that thought logically anywhere, no one would ever say anything to anyone, right? Because no one is perfect, right? So, like, kind of the idea of, like, well, I would never be in a place to call someone out because I'm messed up too. Yeah, we all are. Welcome. It's called church, right? The, the only way you get in the door is if you acknowledge you need a savior, okay? <laughs> so, but again, this, this is hard to do, church. It's hard to, in love, look at people we care about and say, I might need to address this issue in your life. It might be hard. It might be uncomfortable. And we might not know how they're going to respond. Will they respond with worldly grief? Which is just kind of, hey, I'm, I'm embarrassed because I've been exposed. Like I, just, I just kind of feel bad about myself. I just kind of feel shame of, man, I'm, I'm not living up to this projected version that I would like for you to have of me. That I'm good and I have it all together and everything always goes good with me. you know. Or is it godly grief that goes, okay. I know in the gospel there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. And I can look at this person and go, maybe they actually love me. Maybe they actually care about me. And so they're bringing this up. Just like I, from a place of love with Ruth, would go, Ruth, I love you. I want to protect you. I want you to be safe. You can't go in the road. Not with me there. Because I love you. Right? And I'll, and I'll free myself up that she gets mad at me for the next three minutes. Because I understand the bigger picture. Right? So a quick example where this happened in my life. I always write my sermons and then I ask people to give uh, me feedback. And my wife's feedback every time is use personal examples. You never use personal examples, you know. So I'm going to try and use a personal example, you know. Um, 
It happened, you know, actually very recently where uh, Lacey and I were talking to a couple. We were kind of just talking about different things in our marriage. We were talking about our budget. And I was sharing how I can just get so stressed out with our budget. Because I'm definitely kind of a control freak, like very type A, like very like I just I want everything to be itemized and in control. And it can stress me out. And Lacey's a little bit more loosey-goosey. And it's a little bit more like, are we okay? Like, you know, are we massively in debt okay then we're good you know um and so we were kind of talking about in our marriage how we can you know be okay with how god has made the other person but i'm thankful because as we were engaging it was kind of brought up hey ben i think there might be an anxiety there might be a fear and maybe even a not trusting god with your finances that is kind of deeper than just the soul, like, I want Lacey to adopt my method of how I keep up with our finances, right? And I could have heard that and gone, no, I'm just trying to be a good steward. No, you, you, don't, you don't understand. Like, I, you know, we, I, I have a good spreadsheet so that we can get more to missions, you know? And to some degree, like, that is part of my logic, right? Um, but to another degree, I can look at this person, and this, I had to do this, like, internally. I could go, well, this person cares about me. They love me, and they're actually trying to help me understand that my little spreadsheet I have on Google Excel is actually more spiritual than I would like to admit. And maybe I do need to trust God with our finances, and maybe I do need to really think about, do I, do I trust that he's good and he'll take care of us, or do I trust that I have to do it all, right? And so again, in worldly grief would then just be, oh, I feel kind of bad because now I feel like I don't look you know, as good. But godly grief goes, no, like, I, I want to change. I want to grow from this. I know there's no condemnation for me. I know we all have shortcomings. I know I don't need to project this perfect version of myself to the world. So perhaps a good application from here would be, when confronted with sin, what type of grief do we tend to have? Is it worldly grief or is it godly grief? Again, worldly grief is just kind of embarrassed you've been exposed. It's very self-focused. Godly grief has a gospel view that I want to change. I want to repent because this is part of my identity. Again, these, these things are connected. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 are connected, right? It's because you guys are the temple of the living God. And Paul literally said this thing in verse 8. You ought to be grieved over your sin. Like because this is who you are, you shouldn't just be okay with your sin. You ought to want to change. And you ought to want to repent because this is who you are. And perhaps another application might be, when was the last time you in love sought to correct someone? Right? And I'm, and I'm not saying go and, you know, be the, the sin police or whatever and just have your notebook out of like, they didn't hold the door for me. Right? So-and-so didn't hold the door. You want to get coffee next week? You know, um, I'm, I'm not saying that. But I am saying Perhaps even the spirit is bringing up, you know, a name or someone in your life where you're like, I think this person maybe needs to be held accountable in some area. Maybe they need someone in love to just say, I love you. I care for you. What's going on here? I think this behavior, I don't know if it's congruent with your identity as a follower of Christ. Help, help me understand. Let's talk about it. I want you to reflect to the world who Jesus is. I think this might be a hindrance to you doing that. Right? Again, that's not fun. 
right? I'm not saying, I don't think anyone's like setting their alarm and going, woo, today's the day I get to call someone out. Let's go. You know, I don't think anyone's saying that. But again, if we're a family, if we're the temple, if we represent God to the nations, then we together can go, let's help one another. Just like me as Ruth's dad, I go, Ruth, you can't do that, buddy. I love you. You can't go on the road, okay? So to close, Paul here felt misrepresented by this church. He pins this letter to let them know. And that's why it says he was fearful. He he pins this letter and he wants them to repent and thankfully they do. We can't control how people are going to respond, right? I'm I'm not telling you from up front, every time you do this, it will go well, right? But we all have room to grow and we ought to love one another enough to say something. So to close church, if you're a Christian, you are a part of the temple of the living God. You get to represent him to the world. You get to display what the presence of God is like. And if we're going to do life together, if we're going to do that with one another, it probably means we need to live in community in such a way where we're willing to tell one another when we're not living up to that identity and that we care for one another. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you invite us into this incredible identity, that we get to be the temple to live in God, even though we have our past, and even though we have our, our sin, and even though we have all these things that come up in our mind that make us feel like I am unworthy of that title, you give it to us. Because in the gospel, we're seen as in Christ. We're seen as perfect, spotless, righteous. And so, God, just pray you would help us to, to steward that well. Help us to represent you to the world, to Durham, to Chapel Hill, to the Triangle, to the nations. God, I pray that there would be people who don't know you that would look at our gathering and they would go, who is the God you worship? God, I pray you would help us to have godly grief that wakes us up to sin in our life, that helps us see when we're not living in accordance with your word. That, God, you would give us hearts that want to repent, that want to change, that don't just want to have a perfect version of ourselves projected to everyone, but one that genuinely says, I want to grow with Christ. And I understand that means I won't always be seen as perfect. So God, would you produce that kind of culture at this church? Would you help us to live out these things in faith? Because they're hard, they're challenging, they are. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for this gathering. Pray that your Holy Spirit would apply these things and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.